Assalamualaikum. We are exploring the Kutasikas, volume 16, Tazayin, the Sikha of Era. When you read the Haggadah on Pesach night, so we have the section after we read the 10 Makas, the 10 plagues. And uh, Rabbi Yehuda gives a sign, the Tzach Hadash Ba'achab. We then have three paragraphs, which seem very technical. And there's a whole calculation of how many plagues there really were. Rabbi Yisiak Lili says there were 10. And then there were 50 at the sea. Uh, uh, Rabbi Eliezer says there were 40, because each one consists of four. And he brings a verse to prove it. Rabbi Akiva says there were 50, because each one of the 10 consists of five. And he brings a verse to prove it. If you're like me, when you come to that place in the Haggadah, over the years before I learned the Sikha, this is like, where is this coming from? You know, and this is late in the Seder. You're already hungry. You're, you're sat already for a long time. And suddenly you're giving me a whole mathematics. It's really 10. No, it's really 40. Because each one is four. Each one is five. What's the relevance? So the Rebbe comes along and uh, bases the Sicha quotes from the cowboy and other classics that says that this is a very meaningful discussion. Uh, the introduction of this is that everything in the creation, we know from Rambam, is made up of four elements. Fire, wind, dust, and, and uh, water. Every single thing, even if you have water, the water in itself has the other three elements. Certainly human being, they're all in there. It's brought in the mind of the Alter Rebbe that if you... Uh, if you take a, a log of wood and you burn it, the element of fire within the wood goes up in the flame, the element of of wind goes up in the smoke, the element of water goes also up in the smoke, there's some kind of moisture in smoke, and the element of dust is what's left over in the ashes. So you can almost see it. But this is a principle brought in Torah, and, and to a great degree science concurs with it, lahavdol. That these are the four elements that make up every single thing in creation. And then there's a fifth thing called which in English, I believe it's translated as the, uh, the primary core. Hiyuli apparently is a word that comes, it's a concept that was coined by the Greek philosophers. And uh, it's recognized again by science as well. And then Hasidus talks about it a lot and utilizes it a lot in understanding creation. And what, how did scientists see it and what does it mean? That in addition to those four elements that put together, let's say that log, there's the actual existence of it. And that's not defined. Just the fact that it exists. You could say the four elements create something specific. It's a log and it's not a piece of silver and it's not water. It's this. It's defined. The core existence, the fact that it exists, is a common denominator really in the silver, in the wood, and in the, and in the water. Existence itself, and even science is recognizing, Greek philosophy, Lahabdul recognizes, and certainly Tater recognizes, that the Abishta created existence, that itself is something of a chidush. The fact that something exists before what exists, that would be my understanding of this Chaymeh Yuli. I'm going to, uh, so, so the Rebbe wants to say that with this concept, we have it. every being has what it, the final product. Then it has the four elements that put it together. And then it has this fifth element, which is the essence of it, the core. This that everyone wants to say will line up with the three opinions in the Haggadah. 
Rabbi Yosef really says there's only 10 plagues, which really means each plague is one. Because as the plagues struck Egypt only in the final product of Egypt, Egypt was struck, Egypt as it was, the final product. Rabbi Eliezer will say, no, it also struck the four elements. Rabbi Akiva will say it also struck the essence of Egypt. Let me pull it up in a spreadsheet, which I believe in this sikhah will be quite helpful. So here we go. So we have the three opinions. The three opinions. Rabbi Osi Aglili, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Akiva, of how many plagues there were, 10, 40, and 50, column B. And uh, the discussion is how deeply the plagues hit. Column C, did it hit just the final product or the four elements or the core essence? And the Rebbe says, therefore, we know what, what was the purpose of the plagues? To smite Egypt, which means to break and destroy the negativity, the impurity, the tumah, the unholiness. So the question, therefore, becomes how deep is the impurity of Egypt that it needs to be smitten? Is it just the final product, Egypt as it is, as it was? Or Egypt was rotten to the elements or rotten to the core? My words, of course. And based on that, we respond with four different, three different approaches of how deeply the makos, the, the, the plagues which were here to smite Egypt, the word maka means to hit, to fix, to correct, to undo its negativity, how deeply it had to hit. If each plague is just one, it's just the final product. If it's also four, it's all four elements. If it's five, it's also that core. I want to just suggest, because uh, I teach this class also in my local community, and to try to make it help understand this concept of Hiuli a little more illustratively. So I used an example of a color, just because it's something we can relate to. Imagine there's a color, like look at the room that I'm sitting in, the room was painted. Let's assume the decorator decided it has to be a certain color, and that color wasn't available. So what did you do? You mixed four colors together, and you came up with this color. So within this color, there's four colors. You might know that there are four primary colors, and if you go to your printer, he'll present to you 4,000 colors because it's mixed and match, which is, I think, a little bit of a muscle of how the four elements can mix and match together, and you have any number of types of creations. So back to my paint. So there's four colors that created this color. So you now have three levels of how to look at this paint. There's the final product. It's this color. Give it a name, whatever you want. The final product. Then you have the four colors as they are mixed in. You can't really take them out. You can't find them, but they're clearly there. And on some level, they're still there, even though you can't take it apart. And then there is the concept of color. This is the main reason why I'm using this analogy. The concept of Hiuli is found in Torah, apparently, in the Ramban, on the early verses of the Torah, Barashah's brother, what is the creation? Before the details of the 10 utterances, what is Barashah's brother, what is the initial creation? Ramban talks about it, and he describes what we as Hasidim call Elam Habriya. It's the first step, it's the first potential that there should be concept of, of existence. And he describes it in that fashion, the very fact that something exists, uh, to us believing Jews that the whole world is a, is a chidush, yeshmiayin, it's something that wasn't. It's a miracle of God that existence even exists. This is not so hard for us to understand. So let's come back to the analogy. I have a finished color. I know there's four colors that made up that color. But who created the concept of color? And that clearly exists. When God said, let there be color, 
didn't have any specific color. It certainly didn't have a combination of colors, but already there existed the potential. And that is really the basis for everything, including the finished product that you're looking at here. You can translate this any existence. You know, you have a, a, a silver product. It's a beautiful candelabra. Then so you have the final product, the silver. Then you have the four elements that are within it, which a good Kabbalist or even a good science lahav, scientist lahavdul with a microscope can find that there are four elements. Today's science has taken the number four and multiplied it, but it's really based on the four elements. So it's not just silver. Silver is a shruach mayim enough, a fire, wind, dust, and air. But then there is the concept of existence or the concept of metal. There are probably many levels to it. And therefore, that is, when we're looking at a candelabra, you know, the salesman in the store sees a menorah. The scientist sees the four elements. You might say the, the, the chassid sees the very fact that it exists, that itself is a chiddush, an innovation. Because existence of anything is a chiddush. And therefore, when you see something, there is its core existence, just the fact that it's here. Before, what is here? That's my understanding of the Siyuli, and I hope that is helpful and not confusing. So coming back here, so the Rebbe seems to, the Rebbe so far is borrowing from the Kolbe and from the Ritzva and other classics who teach this concept. Of the Machlekes, of the three-way Machlekes that we discuss in the Haggadah. Now here the Rebbe is coming in and adding and putting this all together and saying, wait a minute, if these, this three-way argument is three levels of how hard Egypt was hit, that means by definition it's three levels of how we see the impurity of Egypt, because why is the purpose of the hitting? To uh, correct the impurity, to break the impurity. So as the Rebbe, take a look at the prohibition of chametz. It's clear that the fact that we're not allowed to eat chametz on Pesach is because it's a reflection of Egypt and whatever Egypt represents that unholiness. And therefore, we're not allowed to eat it. We find in the prohibition of chametz multiple levels. And here, too, there's going to be opinions. Whether you're not allowed to eat it or you're also not allowed to have any benefit from it or you're not even allowed to possess it. And the Rebbe is going to say, the Rebbe is going to teach us that these three correspond to these three levels. Remember, in Torah, especially when you learn Chassidus, and the way the Rebbe teaches us, that everything that is in Pnimis Torah, in Agada, in Midrashic writings, and Hasidic writings, and Kabbalistic writings, is mirrored in Halacha. It's all one Torah. The Rebbe doesn't see Chas Shalom as four different Torahs, the four levels of Torah. It's one Torah. The Zohar describes Torah, the Pnimis, and the Nigla, the revealed and the hidden, as a body and a soul. They mirror perfectly. So this is an example of where the Rebbe does that in the Sikh and says the fact that Chametz is prohibited is because Egypt is no good among Kalamdi. And Chametz somehow is an incarnation, a representation of Egypt, at least for those eight days. And therefore, to what degree Chametz is prohibited is to what degree Egypt is corrupt and unholy. By way of brief introduction, most things in Torah we find are prohibited to eat. Like unkosher meat, roadkill, nevela, if it wasn't slaughtered properly. Then there are some things that are also prohibited to benefit from. An example is idolatrous stuff. 
Yayinesach, wine that may have been used for idolatry, or uh, let's say uh, milk and meat, interestingly enough, is a higher level prohibition than just roadkill, unkosher meat. And you're not allowed to even derive benefit from it. And it's discussed as that, but what would be the difference? Why is it that certain things I'm not allowed to eat, but I'm allowed to derive benefit? The reason why I'm not allowed to eat it, because it's unholy. It's klipa, right? How does Chassidus teach us that everything in the world lives, lives on divine energy? And if you have something holy, it's divine energy that's holy. If you have something that is mundane, so it's a, it's more of a concealment, and you have something that's unholy, it is divine energy that is put into the direction of klipa, and it's unholy energy now. And the way to deal with it is to push it away. That's 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 the purpose. That's why it's created. So if something is unholy, let's take roadkill, the vela, unholy chicken that I buy in the supermarket in the supermarket, God forbid, that has no action. How come I allowed to derive benefit and give it to my pet or my housekeeper? Um, if it's unholy, which means I'm not allowed to eat it. Why? Because it's today, because it has un a clipper in it. How come I'm allowed to derive benefit? What's the difference? So the Rebbe analyzes this. By the way, on the face of it, it's normally discussed and looked at as, well, if you eat it, you're ingesting it. You're just deriving benefit. You're giving it to your pet or to your non-Jewish neighbor or friend. At least it's not going inside of you. That's how it's normally looked at. The problem with that is that Rebbe doesn't suffice with that for two reasons. First of all, if that's the case, so how come when it comes to other things like, like the unkosher wine or milk and meat, I'm not allowed to derive benefit. I'm not taking it in. Plus, and this is the main way that Rebbe presents it in this sicha, if something is unholy, if something is trait, it's, it's klipa, it's, let's call it evil, it's an enemy of Hashem, of Elokos, of divinity, why do I want to have any benefit? How could I have any benefit? Who cares if I'm digesting it or not? I shouldn't want to touch it. So, the Rebbe illuminates this in this sikh and says that it has to do with how deep the impurity penetrated the item. You see. And the Rebbe says, based on this, we're going to understand all three opinions. Abiyasi Aglili is of the, of the opinion that you're not allowed to eat chametz and Pesach. You're allowed to benefit. This is a very unusual, it's an opinion just of Abiyasi Aglili. You're allowed to benefit from chametz. But you're not allowed to eat it because he holds. Remember, what did we say? That the impurity of, of, of Egypt and hence chametz only permeate the final product. When you have a product, what are you eating? The final product. You're not eating the four elements. You can't eat the four elements. You can't eat dust and wind and air and fire. None of those things are edible. So when you say that something is only impure on its final product, the only prohibition required to stay away, to refrain from that impurity, is eating it. Parenthetically, possessing it is also biblically prohibited, but according to this opinion, it would we would say, as brought down in many commentaries, uh, and the Rebbe one, applies it to Rabbi Yossi, we would say that it's, it's, it's prohibited as a safeguard. God forbid you come to eat it. Because it's it's very bad if you eat it. This is this is Egypt. This is Yetzirah. So it's very bad if you eat it. And therefore, we made a safeguard. But not only, but it's not that in concept it's terrible if it's in your house. It's terrible because Torah uh, uh, prohibited it as a safeguard lest you eat it. Proof is he even allowed to benefit from. It. That's Rabbi Yaisi. 
Rabbi Eliezer says, both eating and benefiting are proscribed by Torah. Because he holds, says the Rebbe, the Rebbe is the one putting this together. He holds that, uh, that the impurity of Egypt and hence the prohibition and the unholiness in Hamas permeates not just the final product, but also the four elements. Think about the four elements of something that's beyond what you can eat, as we said before. But the four elements still means you have something. You have a defined object. And when I, and therefore, if the object, almost so to speak, without its final form, is permeated with impurity, I can't have any benefit from it. Not just I can't eat it. This is how I see the logic. Not just I can't eat it because, and the Rebbe really says it, because eating, you can only eat a final product. You can't eat the four elements. None of them are edible. I mean, water is, but ultimately, elements are not edible. So if it's only about the final product, it's about the eating. But if it's about the four elements, that means, let's say, the, the, the everything about this thing, before it's a final product, is unholy, I can't benefit from it. This thing is no good. Not just its final use. Its essence is no good. And that's the four products, the four elements. That's what makes up a thing. Here, too, though, we would say that the, the prohibition of possessing which is clearly a biblical prohibition, would also only be as a safeguard. Whereas Rabbi Akiva says that Rabbi, he would hold that all three are biblically prohibited because it's problematic on all three levels, as we said, not only the final product, not only the four elements, but even the siyuli. Siyuli means the core being, almost like not what it is, but that it is, and therefore I can't even possess it. It's not just about eating it, which is the form. Not only about possessing it, which is the object, even before it, even when it's formless, but about possessing the it before it's even a particular object. It's hard for us to understand that because we don't, we're not talking about anything defined yet. But that's what how we would describe Hiuli, and that's what Rabbi Akiva would say is the prohibition. So this is a beautiful map that the Rebbe is putting together. One of the beauties of the Sikha is not just that it illuminates the Haggadah and it connects Nigla and Chassidus, Nigla and Medrash, etc., the various levels of Torah study. But there are various points in the Sikha where the Rebbe shows that his approach is backed up with the Gemara. So in column D, the Rebbe comes up with this whole thing. And one of the things that backs it up from the Gemara is that Rabbi Yisiaglili actually holds that only eating is prohibited and not benefiting. So that is a very big support to this. And we're going to see now in column E, a similar thing where the Rebbe is going to put everything into columns, so to speak. And again, it's being based on, on Talmudic uh, clear opinions in the Talmud. And that is this. We know that there's a dispute about the method of getting rid of the chametz, and uh, the sages, the, Rabbi Yehuda says, you have to burn it. Ain bir Again, because chametz is so bad that you have to, you're not just eat it, you're not allowed to benefit, you're not even have it. So you have to. There's a mitzvah bir chametz, and the only way, says Rabbi Yehuda, is to burn it. The sages say no. You could crumble it to the wind and throw it to the sea. 
and it's gone. Says the Rebbe, this is a, says the Rebbe that, that what's the significance of this argument? It's not just the sages look to argue about everything else. There's a reason, there's a significance. Says the Rebbe, it would fit right in here. If you hold like Rabbi Eliezer, that what, that chametz. Um, that the chametz, the impurity is, is only on the product, not on the core essence. You throw it to the sea, there's no more product. There's no use. Maybe it exists somewhere under the sea and it's crumbled to the wind, but there's no use. It's, it's, it's not available. It's impossible to be available. And therefore, there's no product. Whereas Rabbi Huda says, no, the impurity touched its core, not just the product, the existence, let's call it. And therefore, even that is needed. Rabbi Yossi doesn't have an opinion on this. and and uh, But the Rebbe, I'm suggesting that Rabbi Yossi would say, just get rid of it. Uh, perhaps, I put that in parentheses. I, I don't know if you have to fill in that box. But but um, the main point is that we have these two opinions. So the Rebbe wants to line up Rabbi Yehuda and the sages in another argument, seemingly unrelated, about chametz, the, the methods of getting rid of chametz. He wants to line it up with this discussion about how deep the impurity of Egypt and hence the deep the, the prohibition of chametz is affected. So here there's a, another zinger that Rabbi Akiva happens to hold like Rabbi Yehuda in this argument. It's clearly stated. So this was an important point. Rabbi Akiva, it's clearly the Rebbe in the footnote tells you where if you want to find it. Rabbi Akiva clearly holds like this opinion. And therefore, this further substantiates, if you will, the Rebbe's approach, the Rebbe's chidushim, the Rebbe's innovations here. Let's move on. In a footnote, the Rebbe brings another interesting argument. I want to just point out that I am skipping um, the beginning of Oishei, of chapter 5 of the Sicha, where the Rebbe introduced another argument, because it's a little hard for me to fit it into my structure. It's a little bit gray, and I feel like it will confuse. But that's, uh, there, the Rebbe brings an additional argument in the Talmud. Uh, there's, a, there's a way to split up this middle opinion that says that not only eating, but also benefiting is prohibited. But there's, there's two opinions in that itself that brought in the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. Some say that what type of benefiting is, is proscribed only if it brings to eating, which would mean like if you sell it and you have money, you can eat it. But if it's benefiting, but there's no monetary gain, for example, you're giving it to a stray dog, which means you have absolutely no, no financial benefit. There's no possibility of benefiting it to eat it because you're not getting any money or any benefit. You're not saving any money. That is sort of two opinions within Rabbi Eliezer itself, within that opinion itself. And the Rebbe wants to further say that that too would, would depend on which level of the impurity is affected, which level of the thing the thing is affected. Okay, I skipped it, but I just put it out there. So if someone wants to explore it further. But then in the footnote, the Rebbe is another one. I, I like to stick to the things that I can make very clear. And that is, is the, the, the well-known argument between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Chometz that a Jew owned, God forbid, on Pesach. He made a mistake, or he didn't clean it out, whatever it is, and he owns it. And then after Pesach, he realizes that he owned it. He forgot to sell it, or he forgot to get rid of it. What do you do? Is it allowed or not allowed? Pesach is already over. So Rabbi Yehuda says it's prohibited, which of course that's the halacha we go by. And Rabbi Shimon says it's 
allowed. So here too, the Rebbe says, the Rebbe's signature style, connecting a legal halakhic dispute, debate, with the Kabbalistic spirituality behind it. It's not just they're all arguing just for the sake of arguing. There's a tremendous amount of depth, obviously, it's Torah. And the Rebbe puts it right into this context. If you hold, like Rabbi Eliezer, this opinion, that what? That the object, the chametz, is has unholiness, and even its four elements, which means so long as there's some form. You're speaking about this. Either you're speaking about the finished bread or the seven layer, or you're speaking about the elements that make it up, but at least you're speaking about this. You're not speaking about existence in the abstract. There's some form. If that's the case, when Pesach is over, it no longer has that form. And why not? The seven layers is still here. But it's no longer chametz because Pesach is over. When Pesach is over, chametz is not proscribed. And therefore, when Pesach is over, Rav Shimon says, you did a terrible thing, and maybe you have to do tshuva. But the kakash cake that you have, the seven layer, you can see what my favorite uh, mezainus is, which I'm not allowed to eat. For me, it's prescribed the whole year round by my wife. But okay, I, I digress. So if I have the, the, have this piece of this piece of bread after Pesach, I don't have chametz. I don't have the form of chametz because chametz is a Pesach concept. And therefore, when Pesach is over, you can eat it. Rabbi Yehuda says the chametz was prohibited on Pesach, not just because it's bread, but that prohibition reached its core existence because it exists. And after Pesach, even though it's not halachically bread anymore with its negative connotation, but it still exists. And that's how deep the prohibition goes, according to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. And here the Rebbe lines it up, with, wants to say it's Rabbi Akiva. Again, here the Rebbe has somewhat of a, of a basis from classic Torah, classic oral Torah, because Rabbi Yehuda obviously would line up with his own opinion in Kalami, which clearly lines up with Rabbi Akiva's opinion in Kalami, because Rabbi Akiva says it clearly in the Talmud. I get a kick out of the fact that the Rebbe, whenever the Rebbe makes a Chiddush, so often he, you understand, is substantiated by classics and by Torah, by, and therefore it makes it sweeter. Now we're going to go into the Hasidic side of the Sicha. Um, so, this is, I guess, the fun part. So the Rebbe says that we know that there are four exiles. Dalagolis. The question is, how do we count them? Really, there are five. Take a look. Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Greek, and Rome. Mitzrayim, Asher, Bovel, Yavon, and Eden, which is the, the Gullus that we're in now, which hopefully is finishing because it's too long. However, depends where you look. So the Rebbe says in most places, in, in Yamara and other places, it, it, it lists the four. It doesn't include Mitzrayim in it. And there are some exceptions where it does where it includes Mitzrayim, and some of the listings where it does include Mitzrayim, it will omit um, Ashur, which is sometimes called Elam. It doesn't matter. But the bottom line is that we find two counts, which is very interesting to us. We find sometimes where Egypt is part of the count, and sometimes it's not part of the count. And the Rebbe brings in a footnote that sometimes we find Egypt counted, and all five are counted. 
Bottom line is, without getting into too much detail in that, because there's a lot to explore in it, in the Sikha and in the footnotes, the Rebbe says here we can start to explain it. We know that uh, these four exiles will correspond to the four elements of creation, which are, if you will, created by and and the four letters of Hashem's name. That's why there's four elements, because ultimately it comes from the four letters of Hashem's name. Everything comes from Elokos. But when these four elements become exiled in a negative, they now become the opposition to the four letters of Hashem's name. But there's a fifth level in Hashem's name, which is the Kretzer Shal Yud, not just Yud K, Vav and K, but the Yud has a little strichel on top, a little crown. And that becomes the fifth level. And in our context, that would be manifest, not just in the four elements, but in the Hiuli, as we discussed now, this core essence. And the question becomes, Do we or do we not count Egypt in the list? It depends if we see Egypt as hitting the core element or not. If we see it as just hitting the four, the, the, if we see it as just hitting the four elements, so prime, the Egypt is just the beginning of it, but primarily, I may have this wrong. Uh, it's possible that... Um, Actually, the way I, I'm, I'm feeling it should say is this. We have to take, confirm this. That that if we say only four, Egypt becomes one of the four. So according to one of the counts, you don't have Assyria. Because this would go according to Rabbi Yazid, that only the four elements are affected by Egypt. And then it's played out through the others. The language is that Egypt is the beginning of all the exiles. Yeah, because it's the first of the elements. It's the Yud of the Yud Kevavke, obviously the enemy of the Yud and the Yud Kevavke, but sort of a derivative of it, etc. Whereas if you hold that this Egypt is counted separate, which means it's not counted as the four, it's sort of the fifth. If the Kreutzer show Yud, it's the enemy of the essence of Hashem's crown. So then, then that would go to this approach that it's the core essence beyond the four elements. Because the four letters of Hashem's name are the source of the four elements. The Kreutzer show Yud is the source of, of the Hiuli within the world and of the enemy, of the negativity within these four, etc. And therefore, this would explain this whole big conversation about what we do with the two different counts of the exiles. And then the Rebbe goes and talking about it on a personal level in Abayda. We know that the Neshama has five levels. Or let's call it more conscious, and then there's the essence. And this will correspond to the four elements. Now you can see it right in front of you. It responds to the four elements and to the essence, to the yichida. What is the essence of a soul? Even an animal soul has an essence. Just the fact that it is, that it's a soul. The first four elements of the soul are very descriptive. Just like the four elements that are behind them, or fire, dust, air, and water. Uh, you know, you have the behavior, you have emotion, you have intellect, you have willpower. All these things are very definable. And every person has them. And obviously, like the four elements within every product, they, they mix and match in different quantities and different mixes and different. Every person is different. But then there is the fact that you're alive. 
you, there's no there's nothing to be said about that. That is not describable. It's is. And that's a good example, so to speak. Not that we fully understand what that means, but we can experience it. We know we're alive, even if we're not experiencing intellect or emotion or even willpower or or action, which is behavior, which is the thought, speech, and action. You know, just the fact that we're alive. Think of a baby at the day old. It doesn't have any of these other things, but it, it knows it's alive. Uh, or maybe that's what you feel when you wake up in the morning and you say, Moidani, before you have a chance to think. And, and, and that is the Huli, the soul. It is. Not what it is. It's nothing yet. It's just is. That's life itself. And on the Neshama side of it, all of these things represent service of Hashem. So the behavior means um, thought, speech, and action of Torah and Mitzvahs. The emotion is love of Hashem, love of a Yid, etc. And Yiras Hashem being afraid of violating Hashem, etc. And then the intellect is the mind that understands Torah. And willpower means uh, beyond that, in the Sikh that I've used the term Mesidus Nefesh, I'm totally dedicated. But then there is the essence. What is it? A Yid is one with Hashem. You can't describe it. It doesn't say anything. It's like a Yuli. It's almost like the essence that we said before at the beginning of the conversation. It's just the object itself. The Neshama of a Yid is a Yid, is Hashem. There's nothing more that can be said about it. So the question is, says the Rebbe, a fantastic thing here. That the whole idea of Etiyas Mitzrayim and the Pesach Seder and everything is for us to experience personal redemption. I just want to put out there, and I imagine most people are familiar with this, that this is the reason why there's five thrillers, five prayers on Yom Kippur, and there's four prayers on Yantif and Shabbos and Rosh Kodesh, and only three prayers every day. That's for the reasons of the five levels of the soul. Because most days we only access the three lowest levels of our neshama. We only experience behavior, emotion, and intellect of our neshama. Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and Yantif, we hit the willpower. There's the neshama is more alive, so to speak. Some, somehow there's a natural feeling of connection. And Yom Kippur, with the last fila of Ne'ilah, we feel that place, we feel consciously or unconsciously, but we experience, if you will, uh, in a more revealed way, that essential bond. Okay. The Rebbe says now that this becomes sort of the lesson from the Sikha, or the Avoidah, that since Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Pesach and the Prohibition and all of the above, comments, is about overcoming my own Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means limitation. We all have limitation by nature, by nurture, by our personalities, by what have you. And the goal of a yid is to slow, to, to try to break out and live like a yid without the limitations of negativity and bad stuff. So the question is, on what levels do we require your tzitzim tzitzim? I'm suggesting that a Rabbi Yisrael's approach would be just behavior. It doesn't say it in the Sikha, because it never doesn't line it up, this third opinion. But perhaps Rabbi Yisrael would take the model from Tanya, you know, just do it. Just do the right thing, and that's it. Leave it alone. Don't worry about what's happening beyond that. Maybe. But Rabbi Eliezer would say, you got to fix all four levels of your neshama, because you got to fix all four elements. The Mitzrayim permeated your animal soul, your inner Pharaoh, and all these things on all four levels. It's not enough just to make sure you don't fall into wrong behaviors, but you got to protect yourself from negative emotions and from negative intellectual 
things and the, and the limitations that they, and the Rabbi Nesich gives examples, emotionally means I could live in a way, I could be doing all the mitzvahs and doing, living like a chesedah yid, but I'm very impressed what people think of me. And that is an emotional impediment. That is a mitzrayim. It's human nature. That's why the first line of Shulchan Aruch is not to take that into account, because it's very hard. A person can be a good yid on, on, on many levels, but at the end of the day, human nature is we're affected by people's opinions of us. And the Rebbe says, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim demands of us to try to get past that. Good luck. But that is part of the Avayid And then the intellect, where a person's intellect is, becomes an impediment because if, if, if he doesn't understand something in Torah, it doesn't, it's not important to him. That's terrible. He may still embrace it because that's what Torah says, but he's in Mitzrayim. His mind becomes, so to speak, his pharaoh, becomes a limitation, limiting factor, because the mind, by definition, is limited. And then even willpower. Even willpower. He has a, a, a limitation on that. He's lacking the ability to dedicate himself completely with whatever calls it, Mercedes Nefesh. And you have to break out of that. But then there is the essence. So the Rebbe says, do we have to do Yitzhak Mitzrayim on the essence? The essence is perfect. So Rebbe says, depends who you are. And this becomes a difference between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer is a tzaddik. He's the son of Hurkinus, who himself was a Talmud Chacham, and he comes from a, a from prodigy of Jewish people. And therefore, the essence of a yid is always holy. There's no need to fix it. You only have to fix it on the four levels. However, give me five minutes. However, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, he says that he also on this fifth level, and the reason is, says the Rebbe, because he was a son of converts, he's a descendant of converts, and therefore even on the essential level, it needs to be transformed, it needs transformation. And therefore Rabbi Akiva says, no, 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 all five. You got to change the Yechida, so to speak, which I guess that's what a convert does. He's a newborn child, he changes his essence. The Rebbe explains and describes it in the Sikha and also in the footnotes, that even on the face of it, this looks like Rabbi Akiva is behind. He's dealing with a negative because he's a convert and therefore he needs this transformation. But really, it brings a net net positive because ultimately, ultimately, that uh, it can still break out of that limitation too. And about the Rebbe says that the Geir or the Balchuva, the famous thing that the Balchuva, he is coming and fighting a negative in a way he can accomplish a greater passion for love for Hashem than a tzaddik because he has to overcome negativity. And therefore, this can be a net net positive. So that becomes how the Rebbe finishes the Sikha. I want to suggest what this could mean to us. Somebody sent me a voice note, uh, a fellow Shliach who's learning the Sikha, maybe teaching the Sikha, and he says, you know, I don't understand. You know, we learn in Tanya that we're supposed to be a Benini. Our job is to is to, is to just thought, speech, and action. That's not really what a Benini is, but basically that's what we're taught for thought, speech, and action. And here that I was talking about correcting not only our behavior, but our emotion, our intellect, our willpower, and even our yechida. Why is it ever telling us this? It can't just be for academic purposes. What's the takeaway? So I don't know, but here's going to be my suggestion. Okay. Here's my suggestion. Take it or leave it. That, yes, the Rebbe's approach and the famous mimer of the Rebbe, Yishloch Yehoshua, that in our generation, it's all about Kabbalah sale, Maisel Bapayel, do the right thing, would be, I guess, like a Yaglili, you know, just do it. Just say no. And the other four levels, the other three levels, we're not so capable of it. However, the Rebbe says many times in Hasidus, 
that in the essential bond, we are connected. Sometimes a simple foot soldier who just does what Hashem wants with total dedication, we access a place in the essence that other generations, which were loftier and more sophisticated, did not access. So I'm suggesting that this is what the Rebbe wants in the Sikha in Avreda. I think one of the things, obviously, what the Rebbe wanted from our generation, the Rebbe didn't bother us so much with these three middle levels, emotion, intellect, and willpower. Obviously, you have to try to use them to the service of Hashem, but the Rebbe's main focus was make sure your behavior is okay. But you might say, if you think about it, the Rebbe looked at us as Rabbi Akiva's. We're not tzaddikim. We're far from it. And said that we have an edge that we could, on our low level, accomplish what Rabbi Akiva accomplished on his high level. This is filled in the Sikhs, how the lowest levels of love of Hashem mirror the highest, the lowest levels of Chuba mirror the highest. So here's how I'm seeing this takeaway. This is what it said to me, that, that our commitment, Kabbalah said, simple foot soldier, doing Tayyar Mitzvahs, we can, in a sense, transform our essence. You see, because the essence is the definition of the, the very recognition of self. And the Rebbe demands of our generation that while I don't expect you to change your midas and your emotion and your intellect and all that, but I expect you to be a shliach. The Rebbe said our whole generation is a shliach. A shliach means I don't belong to myself, I belong to somebody else. That is, in a sense, an objection to the core ego, to the core essence. And although it's not something that, that we have developed through our Vedas and through very high levels of appreciation, because we're not capable of that, but through our very commitment that we that we follow commands about whatever. This is what we have to do. Matsayim, Rambam, learning, whatever it is. Surmina, Seitayim, that very definition, a soldier in a way is the highest level. And therefore we almost don't belong to ourselves. We gave ourselves away. At least on a practical level. And in a sense, that's the Yechida. We had a conversation here last Shabbos in our shul that uh, one of the lessons of Pasha Shemos, Shemos can mean a name in the negative way. Everybody's looking for a name for themselves. Everybody wants to go down in history. Everyone wants to know that they're going to be remembered. It's human nature to worry. How am I going to be remembered? Who's going to know about me in 50 years, 100 years? Only one in 10,000 people is remembered by history. And the human ego is, is worrying about it. I don't know if Chassidish or Yidin are worrying about it, but human beings basically worry. I'm going to be irrelevant. The greatest fear is irrelevance. And so my message to my congregation was that Shemos, this desire for a name, for a recognition, for something, is what brings us into Egypt. Shemos b'nei Yisrael abayi mitzrayim. Whereas the way to be is like Moshe Rabbeinu in the parasha, he's not busy with his name, he's busy doing. He's saving this one, he's saving that one, he's breaking up a fight, he's saving the daughters of Yisrael, etc., etc. This name for a name, it, but it's human nature. I want to know that I matter. I don't want to just be a, a, a passing shadow. The answer is that a Yid and an Ashama, really any human being, which is an image of Hashem, is like a ray of light from the sun. So by allegory, if you say Hashem is the sun and you're a ray of light, the ray of light doesn't need to go make a name for itself. It's busy doing its job. It's just transparent in the light of the sun. It's not it, it's sun. I said to the people, you don't have to worry about shame, your name. You are Hashem. You are, on the virtue of your Neshama, you're part of Hashem and that's eternal, etc. Just so here I'm showing, I'm illustrating how I see it, how behavior and essence go together. When a Yid in this simple generation of people, Deir Shvi, follows the Rebbe's instructions, which is pull the trigger, go, do what you got to do, stay away from Tzara uh, uh, from... and Chzidis and Rambam and Mephzayim and just do. We're just foot soldiers. 
We have over bypassed the three middle levels, but in a way we're capable of touching and tasting that concept of Rabbi Akiva's overhaul of the essence, because I've sort of been given away my essence. Because the Rebbe says in the Sikha, that uh, because I, I'm giving away my identity. This is how I'm seeing it. Again, I, I, this is just a personal takeaway that I feel like I want to share because I think that the Rebbe wants that a Sikha should have relevance. And I think what I'm saying may not be the ultimate truth, but I think it's true. Okay. <laughs>